everybody. This is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. And today I have nursing student Sydney on with me. She is an um, Instagrammer and nursing student. <laughs> Hello, Sydney. Hi. So <laughs> Thank you for having me on. <laughs> thank you for coming on. I reached out to Sydney to see if she would like to come on because we talk about nursing students all the time on this podcast. You guys are, I, I get all these, e- these emails and, t- and messages from from nursing students and they're like, oh, I love the show. And I'm like, are you kidding? Like, I love you. I love you guys so much. You are so excited about nursing, so positive about it. And you are literally my motivation for doing this to try to keep people. We need nurses. We need good nurses Mm -hmm. and we need our nurses to have good positive attitudes and, and we need to stay motivated. And so it's literally, you're literally the reason. Oh my God, that's so sweet. (laughs) We, we definitely look to you guys too for inspiration. Wonderful. Well, I love your Instagram page. You guys should go where, what is, tell everyone the name of your actual Instagram page. So my handle is at nursing student Sid. Mm -hmm. At nursing student Sid Instagram page. I love all those. I'm always trying to find them uh, (laughs) as many as I can to try to follow. They're so, Mm -hmm. so much just fun and inspiring. And you see, you, you can just relate. It's so nice to be able mm-hmm. to, that's the, one of the great things about social media. There's a lot of bad stuff about it, but one of the most mm-hmm. wonderful things about it is that you can see that you have things in common with people. If you're struggling and you see someone else is kind of struggling with something, you know, you're not alone. And that's really nice. Mm-hmm. The community on Instagram is so nice too. Like I get the sweetest messages mm-hmm. about how like people may be struggling and they message me and they're looking for help. And it's so nice to know that like I can help them because I know other nursing Instagrammers or just other people who have helped me. So it's good to like give back and be a resource for people. Exactly. Exactly. That's what, and I feel like we're using that for good, you know, and there's a lot of bad out there, but we're actually trying to use that to help people and spread positivity and kindness, you know, and encouragement. So congrats to you and thank thank you. (laughs) course. So we, um, having said that, we are going to talk about, we've got a nursing news story, of course, we have a, a, a bad nurse story, obviously, and then we have a really fun good nurse story that I'm excited about. But first mm-hmm. of all, this, the, the nursing news story, I, I'm embarrassed to say this because I research news all the time, to- nursing news all the time, and I somehow this went right past me. Usually you guys are so good with sending me these, this stuff. <laughs> I usually get inundated with these stories. And I don't know how this got past me, but somehow I did not know about this. But this um, doctor in Ohio, Dr. William Husel, H-U-S-E-L, I don't know how really to pronounce it, but that is how it's spelled, was indicted on 25 counts of murder back in June for, it, it says, for over-prescribing pain medicine to patients near death. When I looked into it and sort of was reading, the initial story that I found is for more, because usually I'm looking for a kind of a current news story to talk about. And the actual story that I found was a story that was talking about nurses supporting this doctor. And this is from December 19th, just a few days ago. And the story is from NBCNews.com. And it says, 10 former colleagues of an Ohio physician accused earlier this year of murdering 25 of his hospital patients. Like the, the word murdering just absolutely guts me right there. When I read that, I'm just like, this is ridiculous. We we talk about nurses who do bad things like that on this show. They're they are the rare, rare exception uh, and doctors, you know, who, who do bad things. This doctor, I don't believe is 
as someone who has done that type of thing, it's just Mm -hmm. just from the little bit that I've been able to look at over the past hour or two since I found the story. So when I read this and it says accused of murdering 25 of his hospital patients because of excessive doses of pain medicine, but these nurses, this story is about the nurses who were standing by him, 10 of these nurses who worked with him directly at the hospital. And what I do know for sure is that if there are, if you can find 10 nurses that worked with this doctor in a hospital who are willing to stand up in a court of law and, and stand behind him, I, I want to do some more research on the story. So don't want to, you know, pass judgment either way yet. Mm-hmm. But I, if I just, if I had to just make a guess or fall on one side or the other without doing any further investigating, I would definitely fall on the side of the doctor in this just because I know that to be, to be able to find 10 nurses who would stand behind yeah. him. You know what I mean? I think that says a lot. It does. So this lawsuit, well, this is actually a criminal investigation. It's not like this is a malpractice suit. This is a criminal investigation. He has been indicted and is facing prison time because he prescribed fentanyl in what they are saying is significantly excessive and potentially fatal doses. And that once those orders were were carried out, verified by the pharmacists, the orders carried out and the medication administered by the nursing staff, that it basically contributed in the patient's ultimate death. And these were all patients who, from what I understand, were at end of life. They were in ICU. They were facing imminent death and they were in a situation where they were trying to keep them comfortable. And so the doctor Mm -hmm. is is prescribing this medicine to try to keep them comfortable. And then the nurses are administering it. And somehow this has gotten reported. And once again, I'm flabbergasted at how this happens. I don't know a lot about the details. Mm -hmm. So I can't really say for sure, but it doesn't feel right. Yeah. I don't know. I, my nursing staff at my school was talking about this mm-hmm. and I had no idea what they were talking about. I had never heard of this. And then once I got the email about what we were going to talk about today, I was shocked. Like I had never heard about this. Well, and what I'm really surprised about is I hadn't heard about it either. And I literally talk about this sort of thing all the time. We, mm-hmm. we I talk about the Redonda Vaught case all the time. The nurse at Van, from the former Vanderbilt Vanderbilt nurse from Nashville who who is being charged criminally. She is still going through this nightmare. And I am very familiar with that case and I stand behind her 100%. And so do um, most other nurses and other medical professionals because we all understand what position she was in and why she did what she did and what happened and that people make mistakes. Um, and that it's important to have a culture where you can make a mistake and not be afraid that you're going to go to prison and face, I mean, not only losing your license and, and losing your job, but losing your freedom. It's, it's just insane. And that's, I'm really kind of surprised that I haven't heard more about this and I haven't. It's like, mm-hmm. no one's talking about this. And I don't understand why. Yeah. I think it is kind of scary too, as like a student, as having that perspective is like, this field is very, it's very serious and like, Things can happen. Yeah. And you always have to be careful. Well, and here's the thing. This is not a mistake that was made. This is, from what I understand, and like I said, I haven't looked at it 
really closely yet. I do. I, I fully intend to do a lot of research on it. I'm going to get the CMS report and read it. And just, I really want to know about this case backwards and forwards and know exactly what's going on. But from what I've been able to kind of glean from the few articles that I've read through, it looks like he was trying to pr- probably prescribe maybe what's called comfort measures to try to keep the patient comfortable through end of life. And this is over a period of like three years from like 2015 to through 2018 that these patients at different times through, throughout those three years, there were different patients who were nearing the end of life and needed, needing to be made comfortable. And then this doctor was prescribing the fentanyl and then, the, and then this was verified by pharmacy. And then the nurses were just administering that as they, as they felt it was needed mm-hmm. to keep the patient comfortable. And I can only go on what, I know what I would do as a nurse if I had a patient who was who was nearing end of life. And many times we do have pretty extensive medications that are ordered for the patient, but that doesn't necessarily mean we're going to administer all of it all at once. We, yeah. we use our judgment. And so we have a patient who is, nearing end of life, everyone understands. The patient under, most of the time understood that it was going to happen. The, the family understands that that this is what's happening. And oftentimes the family will be saying, please, can you do something? They are obviously uncomfortable. They're obviously in pain. They're squirming around. And even if they can't say anything, sometimes they're not able to say anything, but you can tell they're gasping for breath. They're they're uncomfortable. Then you go get what you have ordered and you give it to them. And if that doesn't work, then you go get more and you just continue to give them pain medicine or medicines like Ativan uh, to relax them so that they can breathe easier. Um, morphine helps relax. It's like a, it's a vasodilator. It helps so that you can breathe easier. Mm-hmm. And you're not administering that medicine to try to at all accelerate the death process. In fact, many times it's exactly the opposite because a lot of times these people are gasping and you can sort of tell. And then when you give them this medicine and and it helps them relax and then they kind of hang on a little bit longer because they're more comfortable, they're relaxed, they're breathing easier. So I, I don't understand the story. I if it is what it appears to be on the surface, and that is that or a doctor was ordering medicine to help a patient be more comfortable at end of life, and then the nurses were carrying out those orders, the patients died as was expected to happen, and then all of a sudden, years later, the CMS Center for Medicaid Services comes in, does some sort of investigation, does a report, you know, somehow yeah. sanctions the hospital or something. I don't know. It's just... I really want to know more about what's going on and it, it's scary to me. Yeah, I definitely am interested to see what ends up happening though. Do we know anything about like what the next step is with this case? I don't know. Now this this article that we were looking at from NBCnews.com, like I said, this is just from a few days ago. So this, I guess, mm-hmm. is probably the most recent information that we have on it. And it's saying mm-hmm. that... This suit comes as 25 Mount Carmel nurses could lose their license for their roles in administering the doses beginning in February before the Ohio Board of Nursing. So apparently, according to this article, these nurses, 25 nurses, are facing loss of their license because they administered the medicine that was ordered and they were, you know, they were trying to keep the patient comfortable 
at the end mm-hmm. of their life. The hospital system had reported 48 nurses and pharmacists to state licensing boards. So the hospital is the one, is the, is what did this. The hospital has reported the nurses, the pharmacists to the licensing boards as part of an investigation mm-hmm. into the deaths of 35 patients. But the prosecutor's office is only charging the doctor. And of course, the doctor's pled not guilty. He's the only one. Facing criminal charges, there are a lot more people who are who are facing loss of their license, who've been suspended from being able to work at the hospital, lost their job completely, facing maybe having to do some training and before they can come back, that sort of thing. Oh. I'm really fascinated by this and I want to do a lot more. I, I want to delve into this a lot, a lot deeper to, to see, is this something, for one thing, is this in relation to state laws pertaining to end of life? Like, are they different from state to state? I mean, different states do have different laws. Yeah. And so... I'm interested to mm -hmm. know more. I want to see what's going on with this. This is a quote from this this article says, this preposterous but headline-grabbing false narrative of an evil rogue doctor and his complicit staff ultimately destroyed the lives and livelihoods of dozens of dedicated nurses and pharmacists and convinced the public, the Franklin County prosecutor and the state attorney general, that something terrible had been going on, according to the lawsuit, which was filed in Franklin County Common Pleas Court. But nothing could be further from the truth. And this was a, a, a quote that's from this this article. Mm-hmm. That's someone in who's on the side of, of, the, of the doctor and, and of the, the nurses and the staff there. Oh. And it says the ex-colleagues contend that Husel, who had additional certification in anesthesiology, so this, is, this doctor is an anesthesiologist, had been working with the hospital's flexible and discretion-permitting policies that allowed doctors and staff to administer high but appropriate doses of fentanyl to patients who were being removed from life support. They maintain that no one was trying to hasten those patients' deaths with pain medication or to euthanize them, which is obviously illegal in Ohio. The compassionate, very end-of-life care that the 35 patients received had a single goal, to allow them to die with dignity and without pain in accordance with their family's wishes. And this is from Robert Landy, a lawyer who's representing the former employees. So to me, it, just from reading this, it sounds exactly on the, uh, what, what it seems. It's like these patients were at end of life. The doctor was an anesthesiologist. He knows, he knows what he's doing. It's not like he made a mistake. He, yeah. he knew that he was trying to prescribe medicine to keep these patients comfortable. The nurses were doing what they felt was was necessary to keep them comfortable. They're taking them off life support for crying out loud. And so the compassionate thing to do is to try to make sure that they die with dignity and instead of dying. Instead of suffering. And suffering. You wouldn't want them. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm just really, it's very disheartening. When I just Mm -hmm. reading this, it's very disheartening. It's scary to me. I, it's, I feel like we don't, I don't know that we have a lot of control over this. It's, there's a, severe lack of education on the part of the prosecutor's office and the people who don't under who who aren't medical I don't even blame them because they don't understand they don't mm-hmm. they're not the ones so why is in the why in the world is someone not in the medical community not standing up and saying this is the way this is supposed to be done. Like, stop and think yeah. about it. If you were in this situation and you were going to be taken off life support and you were the one facing an imminent death or your family member, would you want 
to die this way or would you want to die this way? Because it's not a matter of, it's not a matter of dying or not dying. It's a matter of dying this way or dying this way. And that's, mm-hmm. that's what I think they don't, they don't get. They don't understand. I'm going to look some more into it. We'll, I'll do mm-hmm. some more investigating, talk some more about it on the show. But mm-hmm. I guess we'll move on from this now. I could talk about it forever <laughs> yeah. just because I feel like there's probably a lot more to the story to talk about. So our bad nurse story this week is it's a little different than stories that we normally do. Um, for one thing, it's it it's a story that's like over 30 years old. It's kind mm-hmm. of it happened a long time ago. Um. And because, but because of modern technology, it's just mm-hmm. recently had some some changes and some updates. Yeah, it's been crazy the changes with like um like cold cases. Mm-hmm. How they've been solving them. I don't know if you knew this, but like I'm a big crime fan, like really? crime junkie fan. Oh, yes, I like love listening to the crime like podcast. Like, of course, I listen to the nursing ones and. Like, <laughs> Love the medical field, but mm-hmm. also I love the crime, like junkie podcast. Same. Like, that's Me my too. favorite. Absolutely. So when I saw this is what the, like the topic we we're talking about, I was like, this is perfect. Like it's yeah. I know. But, I'm the same way. Yeah. I love um like all the different like my favorite murder and mm-hmm. um <laughs> true crime garage and generation Y. I love those podcasts and all, there's all kinds of different ones that I'll listen to. And so, and that was also one of the reasons I, I was like, is there anything medical or like nursing mm-hmm. out there when if it was like about a year and a half ago when I started this and there wasn't, and I was like, I wonder if I could do that, you know, and it just sort of kind of mm-hmm. got this, this started. But <laughs> <laughs> so this is, um, it starts back in 1986, the story. And it's super sad, you guys. I mean, it really is. There's just no way around it. And there's definitely some triggers in here. You might want to, you know, think about it before you listen to this. If you, because there there is some talk of, you know, rape and that sort of thing. So if you, um, if there's anything like that that bothers bothers you, that you might want to, you might want to skip the story. And I just like to say that at the beginning of a story like this, just because, it is particularly difficult to to listen to. And we also always say on here that these things aren't always easy to talk about, but the, the fact is that it happens. And if you don't talk about it, you're never going to shine a light in the darkness. You have to talk about those things. You can't just pretend like it doesn't happen mm-hmm. because we have to be aware that this stuff goes on. It helps future victims to know how to protect themselves. It helps parents to know how to protect their children. It you We have to educate each other. It helps people to be aware of what other people are capable of doing and yeah. that's just that's just unfortunately the world that we live in thank goodness the vast majority of people and the vast majority of healthcare professionals are amazing wonderful people that mm-hmm. go into the profession to help others and they would not be in that that profession if they were not wonderful people but just like any other profession you're going to have bad apples yep <laughs> so on March 26th in 1986 a 12-year-old little girl with long blonde hair and those big glass, glasses, the big <laughs> round 80s glasses. Um, her, her name was Michelle Welch. She went to the park with her two younger sisters. They lived in Tacoma, Washington. It was about 10 o'clock in the morning. And when they got to the park, they realized they rode their bicycles there and they realized that they had left their lunches at home. So Michelle oldest 
she, like I said, she was 12. She said, I'll just run home and get her lunches and come back. So she rode her bicycle home. And when she, the, so the two younger sisters stayed there at the park. Well, while they were there, they needed to go to the bathroom and there wasn't a public restroom at the park at the time. And so they walked over to a business that was nearby. Well, when they got back, they saw that their lunches were there and they were sitting on a table. Michelle's bicycle was there locked beside their bicycles and they couldn't find her anywhere. They started looking for her and they weren't able to find her. And so they went home and they told their babysitter they didn't know where she was by about three o'clock that afternoon, the police got to the park and, and started looking for her. Well, later on, one of a classmate of theirs, it was a, he was thirteen, said he saw a strange man under a bridge. There's like a bridge, I guess, in the park. I, I kind of envisioned like a little walkover bridge, you know, mm-hmm. maybe that goes yeah. over a creek, but that he he saw a man under the bridge that was kind of looking at the girls. Well, a tracking dog found her body around 11.30 that night in a makeshift fire pit area in a gulch near the bridge. She had been beaten and sexually assaulted and died um, because of a cut to her neck. So obviously shocking, awful. Mm -hmm. You know, this is just, I'm sure, this was a very nice neighborhood. Nothing like this had ever happened before. Obviously, the they felt comfortable, the 12-year-olds and, and, and younger, riding their bicycle to the park. Being by themselves, yeah. yeah. It was a different time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it it's like, it, it is a time before the internet, and it's before 24-hour news channels where you know everything that's going on, and you... In, and you have access to, you have podcasts like this that talk about this sort of, yeah. thing, sort of thing that happens. And I'm sure that these things did go on all the time. But because we didn't have access to news like this, n- people probably didn't realize, you know. And so when something like this happened, it was shocking. And just people had no idea that this sort of thing happened. Mm-hmm. So about five months later, on August the 4th, that same year, 13-year-old Jennifer Bastion was riding her bicycle. This is at a different park in the same kind of area. Um, She went missing. And investigators were just sure that these cases had to be linked to the same person. If you think about it. It was like the same same characteristic of the little girl. Absolutely. Same age, same Mm -hmm. scenario. There's any reasonable. You would just think it would be the same person. Absolutely. Any reasonable person would think that these were linked. No, no one could. Um, it would be ridiculous to, to, to for, for, for someone to say, well, you don't know for sure. Yeah. I mean, you could sort of imagine them going, this has to be linked. There's no way. If my life depended on it, I would say that mm-hmm. they're definitely linked. Well, and it was pretty close together in time. Oh, yeah. Just like within a couple months. A few months. Yeah. Yeah. March to August. So they formed um, a six-person task force because they decided there's somebody who has done this multiple times. They're probably going to do it again. Maybe they've done it before and we don't even know it. Um, Thousands of tips had to be investigated. They weren't ever able to link anyone to either murder. Whoa. Yeah. DNA from the killer, they weren't able to match it to any 
of the 11 million uh, DNA profiles that were in the national database of felons. Mm -hmm. And then in 2016, so here we go, 30 years goes by. Long time after. (laughs) Yeah, these poor mothers the the sisters of these girls, the family, all the detectives working the case, everyone involved in this, thirty years, and I guarantee oh you those yeah those mothers. Could you imagine being the moms? I mean, those I, little girls, right? One day, thirty years, their pain is it's it's not different. It's no different. It's not like it's going to go away. They're not going to yeah. get over it. It's still excruciating. It's still awful. And I guarantee you they still wanted to find the person that did this to their daughter. Mm -hmm. So DNA testing had definitely progressed significantly. And investigators decided they they had not forgotten about it. They They sent the DNA test through a new type of technology called snapshot DNA phenotyping. So what this does is it's able to predict the physical appearance of a suspect based on the DNA profile. So even if they don't know exactly who it is, like they don't have a match for it, but they can tell by the characteristics of the DNA. Well, they can tell possibly what hair color, (laughs) skin tone, that sort of thing. Like your appearance pretty much. Yeah, which is pretty significant if you think about it. amazing, yeah. And that was in 2016? Mm Mm-hmm. That was in 2016. Well, in May of 2016, the snapshot phenotype reports were delivered to the members of the task force. And the DNA showed that although both men were Caucasian um, and that they had similar trait, um, well, they were both Caucasian men, but they had some differences in some of their traits. Like one of them was Northern European Um, as far as ancestry, and the other one had a small amount of Northern Native American. And so even though that might seem like it's not that significant, the fact is it shows that they're really two different people, which was shocking to everyone. Yeah. (laughs) This was two completely different people. I mean, they could not... crazy to think about too. Right. I mean, they were like, Like, well, there's no way that you could have knocked them over with a feather. They were just like, Mm-hmm. And it's irrefutable. I mean, it's it's not like you can, it's DNA evidence. It's, yeah, it's their DNA. Like you can't, <laughs> science doesn't lie. Right. So police decided we need to re- kind of like go back and just restart this whole investigation as if this is the first time it's like happened. But mm-hmm. from the very beginning, let's go back and look at it because obviously we were looking at this from the beginning as if there were it was the same person. So we need to go back and just don't assume anything. Mm-hmm. Approximately 60 people participated in the cold case um, child abduction exercise, including representatives from the FBI, the um, Department of Emergency Management, and uh, the 911 office. They opened up a tip line and detectives were sent out to follow up on leads. So they were really taking this seriously. Mm -hmm. They start going back over some of the previous suspects because they had a list of suspects, but they didn't really have anyone that that stood out that they were able Mm -hmm. to, you know, tie to it directly. So they go back and they ask for 
DNA swabs. Well, one of the suspects was Robert Washburn. He was a suspect because he, a few weeks after Michelle Welch's disappearance, he called in a tip to police saying that he had spotted a man jogging at a nearby park. Now, this is not the same park that Michelle and her sisters went to where she disappeared from. He called in a few weeks after her disappearance and said, oh, at this other park where I go and jog sometimes, I saw this guy jogging and he kind of fits the description of the guy that that kid said he saw under the bridge. So police are like, oh, that's interesting. It's a little weird. (laughs) Yeah. Because a few months later, after that phone call, is when Jennifer Bastion was last seen alive at Mm -hmm. the park that Washburn claimed he saw the strange man jogging in. So Robert Washburn, mm -hmm, he calls in, he's like, I don't know, you know, but I see, I saw this guy jogging in this other park. He looks a whole lot like that guy that that 13-year-old kid described. And just letting you know. And then after after he reports this, then this, another little girl, Jennifer Bastion, went missing. She was also riding her bicycle. She she was missing in the park. And so the police are kind of like, well, is this just a coincidence? I mean, like, it's weird. Is it a coincidence? What's the chances this guy would happen to just call in a tip and then this happened? So he went on the list. He put himself right on the list of, yeah, <laughs> of suspects. He, you know, anyway, we'll just, <laughs> we'll leave it at that. But... <laughs> <laughs> they were suspicious, but they couldn't find any evidence that really tied him to it or that that really proved he was involved. So in 2018, when they decided to go back over the suspects that they see his name on there, they request DNA swabs from everyone. He agreed. He's one of the many he people. <laughs> he agreed to do it. He let them swab his, his cheek. Well, wow. yeah, the DNA came back a match and... Uh, it was a match to the DNA that was found in Jennifer Bastion's bathing suit that she had been wearing that day that, that she was so taken. Do you think he called in that tip to place the to place Michelle's killer at that park? The, so he could like try and connect them? Yes. What they to make it think, seem like it was one person? Right. What they think is they suspect, and of course he, he didn't say this, he didn't come right out and say it, but they suspect that when Michelle was was taken and and killed that he got the idea that well I could probably do this get away and get away with it because they would assume it was the other person. Oh. Okay. Especially if I say if he had already set that mm-hmm. lead up for them. Right. So that's kind of what they're thinking. You know, not that he actually came right out and said it, but it just it's really mm-hmm. the only thing that makes sense because it was reported after Michelle's death and before Jennifer Jennifer's death happened. So it's kind of the only thing that makes sense is that he was in some way trying to set it up to where they would be like, oh, it must be the same person. He probably had an alibi for the first kidnapping and death that happened. So he probably figured he would be not considered a suspect in the second one. Mm -hmm. So in May of 2018, so that same year, this is just a little over a year ago, Tacoma police detectives decide to give approval to have DNA from Michelle Welch's killer to be uploaded to 
GED Match, and that is a public genetic genealogy database. It's kind of one of those where you swab your mouth, send it in, and like, hey, I want to know what my family tree is, where do I come from, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, they apparently, there are some of those companies don't cooperate with law enforcement. They don't provide, they don't make their information public. So law enforcement, they don't have access to it, but this particular company does. And so they submitted that DNA to that, and I'm trying to match it to all of the DNA profiles that were in that um, GED match. And so Mm -hmm. they were able to build like a family tree, essentially. And it shows the sort of like a family tree of people, of people that are in that database who would be, who would basically be related to that person. So all of these Mm -hmm. people are somehow related to the person that committed this crime. Whoa. So they're looking through like family members. Yes. And connecting it to the killer. Mm Mm-hmm. That's crazy. I'm pretty sure they've been doing that with a lot of cold cases recently, too. They have. That's like how with they, the Golden State Killer, right? Exactly. Perfect sure. example. That's exactly yeah. what happened. That 23andMe, I think, was the company that mm-hmm. they used on for that for him. So, and there's been a couple of other. There's been a lot of others. It's it's interesting because perfectly innocent people don't have a reason to worry about sending in their their DNA. So they send their DNA in, going, I just. I'm just curious about, you know, my history, my ancestry. Yeah. They don't have anything to hide. They're, they they don't even know maybe that they have some third or fourth cousin that they know nothing about that lives yeah. in another state that have no connection to whatsoever, but their DNA is connected. And when, so law enforcement submits this person's DNA, who they know, who they know, well, this DNA came from, uh, this source from this this crime, and then this company comes back and says, "Well, here is a list of all of the people who relate who are in our database who are related to that person." Mm-hmm. Well, they were able to narrow that down to a man by the name of Gary Charles Hartman and his brother, and both because both of them lived in Tacoma, Washington, at the same time when Michelle Welch was murdered. So they put both of them under police surveillance. And eventually, by, after following them around long enough, they were able to obtain a sample of his, of Gary Hartman's DNA from a napkin that he had thrown away. Wow. I know. And so... That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the time, Hartman was working as a community nurse specialist at Western State Hospital. He had no criminal record. And in June of 2018... More than 30 years after 12-year-old Michelle Welch was found murdered, they arrested Gary Charles Hartman, who was 36, charged him with murder and rape. An investigator said that the DNA technology is rapidly advancing. If you're a criminal who left DNA at a crime scene, you might as well turn yourself in now. We will eventually catch you. So he is presumed innocent, of course, until he stands trial. He's saying he's not guilty. He's pleaded not guilty. So friends, families, neighbors, coworkers, they're completely shocked. They, I mean, people are, are just kind of like, what is going on? This is this really upstanding mm-hmm. person. He's never done anything wrong. He has no 
no criminal history. You can't be a nurse, really, and have have any kind of significant, you know. <laughs> nope. So, and, and the interesting thing about this is when I was doing the research for this, there's not a lot of information out there as to what's going on with this case. I was trying, like, everything to figure out, like, when is the court date? When is this trial going to happen? What? And the only thing I can figure, it looks like he, they had set a really high bond, like a $1.5 million bond, I think oh, is wow. what I saw. But I I didn't, I don't know that he, I think he was arrested and is still in jail, but I don't know 100% because it, it's that's kind of what it looked like. Mm-hmm. So he's just awaiting trial pretty he's, much? I guess he's Possibly. awaiting trial. That's that's the, that's literally the the latest information I could find about that case was in um, like June of 2018 when when that when it initially happened. Oh wow! So we still there's still no word. No, and a lot What's of times happening? this stuff usually does take a couple of years. Yeah, for, you know it's it takes a while because they have to have time to do the the defense has to have time to get all of their ducks in a row and get all of whatever evidence they need. Um, and to mount for their their defense. Um, and so they're still working on it. And so he's definitely presumed innocent. But that is what happened. Oh, my gosh. You, whenever I hear cases like these, I always just imagine, like, why? Like, what was their motive of doing this? I know. Like, they didn't know the little girls. So, like, why? I know. Especially had, like, I don't know. <laughs> and that's what his, uh, one of the little girls, her mother said that and I just wanted to know why why what what were you you know you went to did you go to the park that day planning this did you know what you were going to do or did it was this just sort of a spur of the moment kind of thing and and I I guess that's something that only the person that did it knows knows yeah yeah but really sad story yeah it's really sad and really unfortunate i'll keep an eye on it and to try to try to keep up with what's going on to see Mm -hmm. if he ever comes out and says whether or not he did it or if you know does some kind of a plea deal or it goes to trial or whatever it there is a dateline episode called evil was watching and in that it talks about both of the little girls and the cases and it has interviews with the sisters now they're grown up and the mothers and the police investigators that worked the case and really just interesting and sad case Mm -hmm. so sad it's we're now in such a different time too like we can't even go outside as kids without like our parents watching yeah i think it's really important for people to realize that there are just bad people in the world sometimes. Mm-hmm. And sometimes those people, they are not necessarily planning to do something. But if there is some child or a per- like, vulnerable yeah. person. Like a crime of opportunity. Right. They, they see they, the opportunity, they're going to take it. Yeah. So just remember that when you're putting yourself in positions or putting your children in a, in a position where they're vulnerable, you could be opening them up to some predator like that. And that's, and some people say, well, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be afraid. I'm not going to live my life afraid. And I, and so my hat's off to those people. Absolutely. Because you can't, that's, it is true. You can't really be held hostage by those people. You kind of have to walk a line, some, you know, find a balance, I guess, between enjoying life, Mm -hmm. not letting them hold you prisoner and trying to, try to be smart at the same time, you know? Yeah. Maybe learn some Learn to use your intuition, not talking to people, um, not talking to someone, not assuming that just because (laughs) someone seems like a nice person, that they are a good person and that they won't hurt you. And sometimes that's Mm -hmm. one of the most important things, you know. You don't want to live a life in fear, but you also want to be safe. (laughs) 
Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, it doesn't mean find like the balance. Yeah, that doesn't mean like stay in your house all the time and don't don't ever go for don't ever go jogging or don't ever go. But just realizing to teach your children and 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 the, yourself, just be aware um, of people and not just mm-hmm. trusting everyone. You know, and forget you know my favorite murder. We don't use language on on you know on this on the show. We kind of like to keep it kind of clean as much as possible. But <laughs> yeah. they they crack me up. They're like, you don't have to be polite to people. And women so often want they are afraid of hurting someone's feelings. So when a stranger comes up and talks to them, and children do this, a stranger comes up and and talks to them. Those pe- those predators, they use that. They know that you don't want to be impolite. They know you, they mm-hmm. know that you don't want to hurt someone's feelings. And so they will use that to try to get you to help them in some way. You know, oh, can you help me carry this box? My arm is hurt. Or can you help me find my dog? Or, you know, that sort of thing. And that no, they, they are banking on the fact that this nice lady or this sweet child won't want to hurt the person's feelings by saying, well, I really, I'm not comfortable doing that. And mm-hmm. we all need to try to remember that it's more important to be assertive, you know, yes. and use our assertive voice and, and protect ourselves first and foremost and say, I'm really sorry. I'm sure you're a nice person, but I don't feel comfortable doing that. And there's nothing wrong with saying that to anyone. Mm-hmm. That's what I try to tell my mom. My mom is one of those people that's so polite. She'll never say no to someone. She always wants to help. But I'm like, you have to say no. If it makes you uncomfortable, yeah. just be polite and say no. Like, yes. it's okay. Yes. You can say no in a polite way. You don't have to be mean about it, but you can Mm -hmm. just, and if they get mad about that, then that's probably not somebody you wanted to help in the first place. Yeah. (laughs) Think about it. You know, if they don't appreciate the fact that you're being safe, Mm -hmm. you don't need to even worry about what they think about you. Right. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, on that note, we'll talk about our good nurse. I am excited about our good nurse because I... I'm so excited. (laughs) (laughs) This, you guys, we're going to talk about the original nurse, Blake. Today. Yes. <laughs> That's what I sent Sydney an email. And I was like, this is the original Nurse Blake. I'm a huge Nurse Blake fan. Me too. I Nurse, love Nurse him. Blake fan. Yeah. I love he's him so much. He's funny and just so easy to watch and listen to. He's I love his upbeat, positive personality. And mm-hmm. I don't know. He's just really cool and fun. And I I just feel like he's he de- he he spreads positivity and and He's, he's, it's so hilarious. His videos always are on point. Like they, <laughs> they say, they make me laugh. And they're so exactly much. right. Like they're, they ex- are. I'm like, he is to the point. He knows. He, he mm-hmm. absolutely gets it. I'm like, he understands mm-hmm. whatever it is that he's kind of like parroting or what, you know, like whether it's night shift. There was one about like nursing and medical TV shows. <laughs> yeah. Did you, I literally died at that one. I was laughing so hard. It's the best. Yeah. Well, can yeah. we call surgery and get an IV? Because they can place an IV, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> you know, just, they're like using the Apple Watch as like a heart monitor. Right. <laughs> or spiking a banana or potassium. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yes, he's so funny. He just gets it. He's just on point with all of his, mm-hmm. all of his videos. They're yeah. great. And he does it in such a great way that, I don't know. I just really appreciate his humor and um, he's so entertaining. So yay, Nurse Blake. And this is the Love original <laughs> Nurse Blake that we're talking about. It's Florence mm-hmm. Guinness Blake. She was a nurse. Um, she was born in 1907 and is widely recognized as a pioneer in the field of pediatric nursing. And she went to 
like one of those hospital programs, you know, that were kind of popular back in the day. So, you know, a lot of nurses went, you know, went through kind of a hospital, more of a clinical type thing. And they learned all about nursing. They're in the hospital, you know, working on Mm -hmm. the floor, which is really cool. And then she became a teacher and um, started working as a supervisor at a children's hospital. She went to a teacher's college at Columbia University where she got her bachelor's degree in 1936. She received a grant from the Rockefeller Foundation to teach pediatric nursing at the Nursing School of Peking Union Medical College in China. Then she came back to the United States and pursued a gra- her um, graduate studies at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, and then later at the Merrill Palmer School in Detroit. And then she completed her master's degree in 1941 and taught at the University of Michigan and Yale. I mean, wow. (laughs) Oh my gosh. She is just on fire. She just went from one Mm -hmm. thing to another. She went to the University of Chicago to establish an advanced pediatric nursing program and worked there until 1959. Um, And while she was there, she helped write and edit several editions of the uh, school textbook Essentials of Pediatrics. And that was my pediatric textbook when I was in school just a few years ago. (laughs) I mean, it's crazy. Like I went and I was like, is that the same Essentials of Pediatrics? And I looked it up and it was. So she helped to author some of the original uh, Essentials of Pediatric books, which is crazy. That's so cool. In 1954, Lippincott published her book, The Child, His Parents, and the Nurse, um, because, so she, this book was sort of, is, I guess, um, given credit to, uh, as starting the whole concept of the patient-centered care, family and patient-centered care, like, mm-hmm. you know, including the family um, in with the uh, taking care of the patient and considering the parents. And this is something you and I were talking about this before. Yeah. That was because she was doing that in the 50s. And like nowadays, that's just like the standard. Like mm-hmm. we just, it's just part of nursing. Like you include the family. And Absolutely. the fact that she was doing that in the 50s is amazing. Right. She like started and, this whole revolution. And we were, yeah, and we were talking about how this is the sort of thing, like, I'm sure this was because of research that she did that show that outcomes are better when you involve the family, when you involve the mm-hmm. parents in caring for the child, because they're the ones that are there. They're the ones that know that child best. We know ourselves, you know, we, so it's better to involve people in their own care, family in the, the care of, um, of children and of, of patients who maybe aren't able to take care of, of kind of incapacitated and, and don't have the ability to make decisions for themselves. Always um, important to involve the patients. And I'm sure that research was showing this and she was trying to get this implemented in her education and the books that she was writing. And so what usually happens in nursing and in in the medical field is it takes decades sometimes for changes like this. We will see through the research or evidence-based practice that something is the best for the patient, but it takes decades for those changes to take place because you start trying to talk about it, you start trying to implement it, and there's always resistance and there's always like, oh, they're always trying to change something. (laughs) It's just something new. There's always, you know, something new coming along and people are very resistant to change. So it just takes time. Mm-hmm. Now you look at this from 50 years ago and you're thinking, well, of course you involve the parents. What? Yeah. 
Of course, that's silly. And it wasn't necessarily the most obvious thing at the time. Mm-hmm. So she's the one that kind of kind of got that whole ball rolling. And she was uh, a professor of nursing and the director of pediatric nursing um, graduate program at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. She retired in 1970 and lived in Madison until her death um, September 12th, 1983. And then she was inducted posthumously into the American Nurses Association Hall of Fame in 1996. Yeah. That's so cool. Oh my goodness. I love this story. I just, when I saw, I I just saw her name. I was like, Nurse Blake, the original Nurse Blake. And then when I started reading about her, I was like, wait, she's like one of the original authors of my pediatric textbook. So I thought she was the coolest. And I love, like, I just look at her picture and I'm like, oh, she does look like an awesome nurse. That she was See, so when cool. you sent me this, I had never heard of her. I feel like nursing programs focus so much on Florence Nightingale. Oh, yeah. And they don't really talk about any other, like, amazing nursing or nurses. And I had no idea. But now she's like an inspiration because I don't know if you know, I wanted to be, I want to be a pediatric nurse. Like, oh. right now I work at a pediatric hospital as a CNA and like, I know peds is for me. I love pediatric patients. So this is incredible. That's awesome. Well, good for you. I'm so glad I didn't even realize that. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm glad that I picked this because I was trying to, I've, I've, we've done Florence Nightingale on this uh, show before. It's been a long time. And I've, uh, we talked about Dorothea Dix last week. And so we try to uh, occasionally bring in some some of the nurses from, you know, a long time ago and talk about them. And sometimes the good nurses are just some average nurse who's working at a hospital and happen to be driving down the road and see somebody that needs help. And, you know, and sometimes we want to go back and remember these people who aren't here anymore, but made a huge impact on the care huge. that we're giving to patients yeah. now, you know? Yeah. Like family-centered or family, patient family-centered care is so important now. Yes. Especially in pediatrics. So the fact that she was doing that 50 years ago, or almost 60, 60, 70, I don't know, long time ago, (laughs) is incredible. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, I guess that's our, that's our good nurse story. And that's, that's our episode. We did it. This is so fun. Thank you so much, Sydney, for coming on to our show and agreeing to host an episode. Thank you so much for having me. I had such a fun time. Hey. And just remind everybody where they can can find you again on Instagram. Oh, you can find me at Nursing Student Sid on Instagram. And I dabble on TikTok a little bit now. Oh, fun. I'm, I have not gotten on there. I'm going to have to try that. Definitely go on. It is so fun. Is it? It's addicting. Like okay. I'll be scrolling for hours and not even realize it. Oh, man. I'm mm-hmm. going to have to go on there and see what I can find. There's a big nursing community on there too now. Really? There's a lot of nursing videos. Okay, now go check it out. All right. Now I'm going to have to get on there and see what it's about for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys go to, you can find me, of course, on at Good Nurse, Bad Nurse on Instagram and GNBN Podcast on Facebook. And you can email me at Tina at GoodNurseBadNurse.com. You can go to our website at GoodNurseBadNurse.com and um, you can listen to our episodes there, of course if you need to for whatever reason and give us feedback send us your stories we love to get stories from you i get i've gotten some amazing stories we mark is going to go uh, put start putting our people that are sending messages on the website so he's going to like kind of give shout outs to people because we're, we're getting so many messages and emails from people now 
I'm still determined to respond to everyone. It's just taking me longer ever, all the time like to get back it can to everyone. Be hard. Yeah, and I'm determined to keep doing it myself and not delegate that off to someone else because I no, want it yeah. to be from me. I feel like, you know, I you want to be authentic. Yeah, I want to be the yeah. person talking to them because <laughs> I genuinely love it when they message me. So I, I want mm-hmm. them to know, you know, it's from me. So appreciate you guys. Definitely message us. And I want you guys to remember that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse. (laughs) 